0: see this coming i guess i didn't think hello and welcome back to another episode of the year of polygamy podcast i'm your host Lindsay, and today i'm bringing on a very interesting scholar antonio trevisan did i say that correctly
1: that's right uh That's an Italian last name, I'm originally from Brazil, so that's probably the third possible pronunciation.
0: All right, so we're somewhat in the ballpark. So Antonio, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and give us some background information on you first.
1: So I have a degree in translation. I've, I've worked with translation and copy editing and language teaching back in Brazil. I I've moved to the United States, and here I've become production worker. I've been working in a food factory for the last four months. I've done some research on Rosla Baron and his Church of the Firstborn. I also write for a Brazilian group blog called Vozes Mormons. Yeah, that's it.
0: So Ross LeBaron is someone we've talked about a little bit. I interviewed Robert Ray Black and he talked about getting his authority from Ross LeBaron and sort of shared some of the wild eccentricities of Ross LeBaron that, you know, he lived in a shack with a goat and things like that. So I've been wanting to talk about Ross for a long time because even though he was eccentric, he is considered by many fundamentalists to be a legitimate or at least argues a good case for a legitimate source of authority so I'm so excited to talk about this with you, but how did you get interested in Ross LeBaron?
1: Back in 2002 or three, I was coming home from my LDS mission. I served an LDS mission in Japan, and I started reading about Mormon fundamentalism in general, and I, I was really curious, I was attracted to some ideas of Ross LeBaron and um uh, his adopted sons, I, I had met online. And I thought it was really unique and uh, it was something I wanted to to go deeper into.
0: Why weren't you afraid to look into that like many traditional LDS people?
1: Uh, good question, I don't know. I I converted to the LDS church as an adult. I was 24, almost turning 25. The, the earliest memory I have about the name Mormon, Mormon Church, was in my childhood. Uh, there was going to be a TV show about Mormon polygamy. Either my parents didn't allow me to watch or there was something more interesting on TV I didn't watch. But that was uh, <laughs> that was something that was in the back of my mind for all my life. And uh I always associated Mormonists to polygamy. So I would eventually wanted to know what the connection was and what the history was. During my mission, I had a very uh, lenient senior companion. We would go uh, to a land house, to an internet cafe. And I eventually, one of those days, I got into the TLC website. TLC was the true and living church based in Manti and Manti. in the late 90s, it was a really powerful, uh, growing organization. And uh, it was the first time I was exposed to Adam God doctrine and also the idea of multiple mortalities or reincarnation within the Mormon context. I, I set all those things on a shelf during my mission. I, I was a pretty obedient missionary, but I uh, still had some not-so-traditional uh doubts and interests so as soon as i i went home i i I wanted to learn more about those things
0: and so you did and here you are and i did yeah okay so let's get into it give us set up who ross lebaron is with the understanding that a lot of people even if they've listened to the podcast might have forgotten his name because we've talked about the lebarons but ervil his brother or yes. He's the one that gets all the attention because he was sort of the murderous LeBaron, but Ross Ross is hardly ever talked about.
1: Yeah, th- that's an interesting start because, in fact, Ross was, uh, during most of his life, a- as a religious leader, he was somehow somewhat overshadowed by his brothers, especially, you know, given the all the violence and the, the more outrageous things that were in the news. So Ross Wesley LeBaron was one of the founders and originally the main leader of the Church of the Firstborn of the Foodness of the Times a new church organized in September 1955 a few months later Ross LeBaron also organized he organized a new church called simply the Church of the Firstborn in December that same year so he he was basically the founder of two churches he was the presiding patriarch of the Church of the Firstborn, from 1955 until his death in 1996.
0: Okay, so According let me to, ask a question about that really quick. So how how does that happen? Because in traditional Mormon authority, at least the way that most LDS people understand it is, you would found one church, but certainly not two. <laughs> and how do you rival your brothers who are also creating churches? How did that work?
1: Well, the Leberons, the, the LeBaron brothers, they come from... I would call the, the crossroads of their own family tradition, Mormon, fundamental, Mormon fundamentalism, and the LDS church. Uh, to that date, fundamentalists wouldn't organize churches. They, th- there was no such thing as, you know, the AUB or the Peterson's group or the FLDS. They were a kind of, uh, if you will, federation of people who wanted to live the United Order, celestial plural marriage. They wanted to teach Adam God doctrine to their children and so on. So w- when the Labyrinths originally established the Church of the Firstborn, or the Funas of the Times, they are definitely breaking from that tradition. There were a few exceptions back in the early in the, uh, 20th century of what some historians have called proto-fundamentalists. But they, they were doing something that was really perceived as something negative by fundamentalists. And the reason why Russell Barron established the quote-unquote second church in December 1955 was that the original agreement, the reg- original uh, unity he had with his brothers were was broken. Uh, Russell Barron was the head patriarch of the church established in September uh, soon afterwards, Joel Baron, who was the church president, uh, claimed a revelation that he was going to preside over everybody, including the head patriarch. And Joel said he was the one mighty and strong. That's a very cherished theme in Mormon fundamentalism. He was the one who would set in order the Church of Jesus Christ. So the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of the Times, according to Joel, according to the other LeBerns, was now the true Church of Jesus Christ, and it was going to replace the LDS Church. Ross LeBern didn't agree with that. Actually, it's very interesting that they didn't even agree on who the firstborn was uh, in Joel LeBaron's church, Joel and Ervo and Florin. The firstborn in the church name was Jesus Christ. And for Ros LeBaron, the church of the firstborn was the church of Adam, meaning the church of God the Father.
0: Okay, so... The Church of God the Father, the Church of Adam, explain why they felt like it needed to be reorganized at all. I mean, we usually focus on the principle of plural marriage, but Ross's arguments didn't just focus on that, right?
1: Actually, he, to my knowledge, he, uh, his main focus was priesthood. Uh, the identity of God and the different orders of priesthood, that was his main issue in a uh, Plural marriage or celestial marriage was just a given. So uh, he wrote very briefly about polygamy. Ross LeBaron did recognize and acknowledge uh, the 1886, September 1886 revelation received by John Taylor. There's actually an interesting coincidence uh, with that year. John Taylor receives the revelation, the most famous revelation he received in 1886. Uh, It's the same year in which... Ross LeBaron's father is born, and it's also the same year in which Colonia Juarez in Mexico is formally established. So in the 1880s, the LDS Church launches this plan to uh, colonize parts of Mexico, especially the states of Sonora and Chihuahua, and that happens after the Edmonds Act. So those cities uh, were going to be places of uh, refuge for polygamous families and those who would still enter plural marriage until 1904.
0: Did they see the confluence of the the year 86 and their establishment or their father as some sort of, I don't know, maybe uh, recognition that, that God was saying that they were somehow more special?
1: Uh, i never never seen that. It's I just... Uh, Uh, a coincidence I've figured out, but um, I I don't think they ever, at least I have not seen anything in print. So uh, Rosalind Barron is born in 1914 in the state of Nevada, and as a small child he goes to Colonia Juarez, and um, that will be of course very important for his uh, upbringing, for his uh, worldview, because post-manifesto polygamy is something visible to him. And also you have, uh, speaking on years and interesting coincidence, uh, you have 1914 as an important date in world history, marking the beginning of the the First World War. And Ross will develop this uh, end-time mindset during his lifetime, Uh, So, no, he didn't write anything, he didn't speculate about 1886, but he would develop this passion for prophecy and interpretation of prophecy, and he would often try to set dates for biblical events, and he would try to relate the news headlines to biblical prophecy. So, for example, when he's 29 or 30 years old in 1943, uh, he writes this pamphlet about the seven seals of the book of revelation. And he says that the first seal was opened in 1936 with the Spanish revolution. And the other six were uh, at the time, you know, very recent events happening in the world war in Europe, in, in Asia. So he, he wasn't a paranoid, he wasn't a prepper, but he had this uh, passion for prophecy. And later in life, he would say that he knew some things by revelation and other things he knew by calculation uh, recognizing the human element the in the human uh, limitation in prophecy interpretation.
0: I want to get into some of his doctrinal interpretations, but first can you can you speak to some of the known eccentricities? I mean he was strange so kind of set him up for us. what does he look like? How did he live? What makes him sort of a eccentric figure in Mormon fundamentalism?
1: Well, uh, Russell Byrne believed in, um, I- I'm going both ways, perhaps eccentricity and uh, doctrinal teachings. He believed there were uh, three great periods in the history of Mormonism. Each period had 120 years. So the first periods started in 1830 with the establishment of the Church of Christ by Joseph Smith and ended... Uh, excuse me, two two large periods of 120 years from 1830 to 1950 and the second one from 1950 on. And the first period was divided into 60-year periods. So uh, with Joseph Smith presiding with the patriarchal case over the church and that ended in 1890 with the manifesto and then the Mormon Fundamentalist movement presiding with the patriarchal keys of Hiram Smith. What made him eccentric in the eyes of fundamentalists was that he claimed to to, to hold the keys of a new period, a patriarchal age, and he was the patriarchal heir of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, that, That didn't go well with the Mormon Fundamentalist movement because he was, of course, putting himself in a higher position in terms of priesthood orders. Uh, Much of Russell Barron's theology is based on the Three Grand Orders discourse by the Prophet Joseph Smith uh, when he speaks of the Aaronic Priesthood, the Melchizedek Priesthood, and the Patriarchal Priesthood. And of course, if you look at the original uh, organization of the, the LDS Church, you have the Three Grand Orders somehow represented in the church hierarchy. You have the presiding bishop, presiding uh, by virtue of the Aaronic priesthood. You have the president of the church that is the presiding high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And you have the patriarch of the church or presiding patriarch uh, an office, the the only uh, office even from father to son and that ended uh, in 1979. Uh, Ross was eccentric in many ways. He believed, for example, in UFOs, and not only that, but he believed that God had uh, a spaceship. Uh, he often spoke of Adam's spaceship, and he would interpret cer- certain things in the scriptures as signs of spaceships. For example, the star of Bethlehem was Adam's spaceship. Needless to say, he, he believed that Adam was God the Father, right? Um, the fish that swallowed Jonah was a spaceship, the chariots of fire, and the um, the story of Elijah, and so on. I, I had the privilege of talking to one of his uh, wives or widows, uh, Joan Knight, uh, four years ago. It was really interesting to talk to her and hear more about the human side of Ra's, not so much the religious leader. So she said her first impression was that he was... Uh, a great dancer. He danced very well. He was a gentleman, and he had very weird ideas about religion. Later in life, he moves to a storage shed in West Valley. His headquarters, of course, are not very tidy. Uh, Some people told me he had a smell. So he had a very different lifestyle and behavior from what you'd expect, you know, in traditional Mormonism of uh, a religious minister, a religious leader, a prophet. Actually, it's very interesting to me that the traditional jargon of prophet Seer Rembelator was never used by Ross, as far as I know, to refer to himself. And even to his most trusted followers, he was simply Ross. He wasn't Brother Ross. He wasn't President LeBaron. He was Ross.
0: That was something that attracted a lot of people to him was he didn't seemed to put on the airs of other people who claimed authority, right? He didn't mind living poorly. He didn't mind having to use fancy language or fancy dress. Do you think that that helped him in the long run or hurt him?
1: Uh, I think both. So on one hand, you have people seeing seeing Raz as having something to teach them. And on the other hand, you have people that would be probably... uh, uh, disappointed. Le um, LeBaron was very adamant in, in terms of his independence and in the independence of the people he ordained. So his adopted sons were supposed to take care of their respective families in all senses, in all needs. So, for example, the father or patriarch, or perhaps the mother or matriarch, would uh, teach the family and give them the ordinances they need. Uh, But that, of course, comes in conflict with the traditional LDS, Mormon fundamentalist views that you need meetings, you need a congregation, you need your highest uh, priesthood leader presiding in your home. There is this interesting story about, uh, I was told that by Tom Green, who was one of the adopted sons of Ross in the 1990s. Uh, Ross was visiting him and... uh, and they were going to have a meal when uh, Tom told Ross, uh, okay, you, you should sit at the head of the table because you're presiding. And and he was chastised because Ross wouldn't preside in anybody's home. He, he was a guest and he was very adamant on people taking charge of their decisions, taking charge of their individual lives.
0: So... You know, I was reading some of his revelations, and, I, and if we have time, I want to talk about his son, Ross LeBaron mm-hmm. Jr., too, because he often gets conflated, and sure. there's some controversy there. But he, uh, one of the things that I noticed, people, even if they followed a different prophet, would often go and consult with Ross— on matters of authority, on marriages. I think John Butcherite had approached him at one point to see if he should marry a certain woman, and Ross, I think, uh, said that he should, even though it went against other leaders' counsel. So how did he get placed in that position?
1: Um, I think many people saw him not as you know, the patriarchal era of Joseph Smith, or the head of the Eighth Dispensation, but uh, they saw him as the friends. Um, They saw him perhaps as, you know, this this common guy that you could talk to, uh, precisely because he wasn't, you know, above everybody. He would dress like a a worker. He would live his simple life. in the 80s and 90s, one of his favorite uh, hangout places was Ogie's Cafe in West Valley. And um, one day there, I met this lovely old couple. They are actually Catholic. They have nothing to do with Mormonism. And they uh, told me how Ross was jovial. That that's the adjective they used. Uh, you know, Ross was, had this upbeat, uh, happy um attitude who tell jokes and um, I think he was approachable
0: so he was approachable you know the pictures that you can find of him now he had sort of a scraggly white beard and he didn't he didn't seem threatening were there any controversies that you're aware of that would follow, question maybe his ethics. Did he marry underage girls? Did he marry family members? Because these things are going to follow his son. And I want to sort of differentiate between Ross Wesley and Ross LeBaron Jr.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually very important. To me, uh, Ross LeBaron Jr. is just really difficult to understand. I've tried to contact him uh, without any success. And um, everything I know about him is either from the news or uh, documents he he published uh, I don't know if he still has or at least he used to have a, a website and uh, the, the main question for me is uh, how does he trace his priesthood uh, in 1977 uh Roslyn Baron jr uh, the, the one that lives in cane beds or Cedar City I don't know where he is right now uh, in 1977 he writes a letter to Spencer Kimball and other general authorities of the ODS Church, and he presents himself as the head of the Eighth Dispensation. That is clearly uh, something he borrowed from his father that's unique to Baron, the Baron senior we're talking about, but uh, he had been excommunicated that same year from the Church of the Firstborn of the Funus at the Times. So, uh, was
0: he excommunicated by his father?
1: Uh, no. Uh, Rosla baron's church is called the Church of the Firstborn. And so, uh, he was... So from... Um, December 1955 on, Ross LeBaron has no role, has no activity in the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of the Times. Okay, he, yeah, I, there's so many
0: firstborns too. and extra, extra words, so it's hard to <laughs> keep, keep those track. So, so
1: It's let's, hard to keep track.
0: Let me just sum this up and tell me if I've got this correct. Ross Wesley LeBaron, son of Alma LeBaron, believes and um, he has some authority, starts his own church, And I want to talk about his followers in just a minute. But his son, Ross LeBaron Jr., stays with his uncle's church. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And then, um, so let's just talk about this really quick. So Ross LeBaron Jr. is still alive, to my knowledge. He has, you know, he's really eccentric. He's been accused of his own sons of uh, marrying one of his own daughters through a pure seed doctrine. It's made a lot of waves in these communities, and he has publicly sided with the Bundys. He's written an open letter to Glenn Beck. He's seen as very controversial.
1: Uh, yes. Um,
0: Am I forgetting anything important?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, that, that's what is in the news, uh, basically. So, yes, he, he has very, very uh, peculiar views and uh, also uh, he also wrote about the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and uh, he believes that some of the characters in the Book of Mormon narrative are the same as of the Bible. So, for example, Abraham is Lehi; they are the same person. Um, everything basically happens in the American continent, in Arizona, Utah, in his property. Um, so when, back to that letter I was mentioning, in, in 1977, he writes to the G- the general authorities of the LDS Church and he says uh, he needs their help to build Zion in the center of the Americas. I don't know exactly what place he's referring to, probably somewhere in Central America.
0: Is there any evidence to believe that Ross LeBaron Jr., was shaped by any of the doctrines of his father? Because I guess it surprises me that he didn't follow his father's church. I never looked into it that carefully, but I expected him to be a follower of his father, not
1: his uncle. He was not a follower of Ross uh, Sr. So again, uh, how does he trace his priesthood? I don't know. Uh, Apparently, it's either uh, from uh, Joel in the, the Mexican church, the Mexican Labyrinth Church, or either, as I am speculating now, a divine appointment or something like that. So while he, he borrowed from his father the concept of eighth dispensation and being the head of the Church of the Firstborn, at least he did in 1977, uh, he doesn't. He apparently doesn't trace his priesthood to his father. I think there is very little in terms of doctrine that it could be traced to uh, Ross Labyrinth, his father, uh, there is an interesting account uh, I was told that someone asked Ross about, Ross Sr., about uh, the so called Seed Doctrine. And what Ross said was simply, stay away from that shit.
0: If only his son, Ross LeBern Jr., would have listened because that is what he's being <laughs> accused of publicly. i mean Yeah, ask you-
1: and the, their relationship uh, seems to be not, not so uh, loving. I, I don't know exactly, but uh, for example, uh, in the last year of his life, Ross Senior goes to, to to hospice in uh, Ross Junior's home, and uh, and he doesn't like it the way he, he's being treated. Uh, later, he told someone that uh, he had never been mistreated so badly by other human being as he was mistreated by his son, Junior.
0: Wow. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to speculate. This is something I know scholars hate to do, but I have to I have to ask this because in studying, you know, the whole diaspora of Mormon fundamentalism, it's strange to me that the LeBaron family itself seems to have a uniqueness in that all the men in the family, not all the men, but many men of the family seem very invested in starting their own churches or questioning the authority. What is it about the LeBaron family specifically where they— I don't know. Even felt the right that they that they had to do that to claim that because there's so much claiming and starting churches in that family.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first I'd like to point out that Mormon fundamentalist today has become this kind of umbrella term for almost everything in Rocky Mountain Mormonism that is not LDS. Yeah. Uh, so so it's quite confusing right now. Uh, you know, that there are people referring to uh chris demelka as a mormon fundamentalist prophet and uh to my knowledge he has never considered himself so uh, i've heard for example someone saying that denver Snuffer was a monogamous mormon fundamentalist so uh of course we we have nowadays uh a lot of diversity within uh mormon fundamentalists, but um you know sticking to the the groups that claim the 1886 uh, ordinations, the Laberens were not Mormon fundamentalists. So Alma Dyer Laberan, quite often called just Dyer, was the Baron's father. Uh, he lived in, in Mexico for many years. In the 1920s, he enters plural marriage, but he never actually uh, blended with the fundamentalist movement. He tried to be independent. So on one occasion, uh, there were fundamentalists in, uh, from the Aurel group in his property, and some tension arise because uh, basically there was telling them that, you know, you are in my place, uh, you are under my authority. Uh, it doesn't mean he wanted to preside over the fundamentalist movement, as I understand. And uh, he was the one who taught Ross and everybody else about a secret priesthood that his family carried. Um, Almadier LeBaron was the grandson of Benjamin F. Johnson. Uh, Johnson was a very close friend to Joseph Smith, business partner, attorney, and so on. And uh, the LeBaron family believed that they were the the heirs, the recipients of uh, that secret priesthood passed from Joseph Smith to Benjamin F. Johnson. Uh, Benjamin J- Johnson was twice a brother in law to Joseph Smith. And when Joseph Smith was asked um, to marry a third uh, Johnson lady, Esther, she was already engaged. He, she was uh, Esther Johnson was engaged to David LeBaron and according to Benjamin F Johnson's biography autobiography uh, the prophet said well let them marry it welcome all right and that was interpreted uh, at least by Alma Deir and uh, his children uh, as meaning that uh, the, the patriarchal keys or a special priesthood key set would be placed in uh, Esther's lineage. So that way, the LeBarons were actually Johnsons and they were actually the chosen seed of the prophet Joseph Smith.
0: Do you think the fact that they have this familial line back to Benjamin F. Johnson, that this is why there is more, I, again, I don't even, I mean, I, I get your point about the fundamentalists, not, them mm-hmm. not being considered fundamentalists, but I guess more apt to claim authority in a non-traditional way?
1: Yeah, probably. The, Joel and Ervo and Florian and Alma LeBaron, they they were initially members of the Alred group. They... After Almadier dies in 1951, uh, Margarito Bautista, that is a very important character of the Mormon history in Mexico, uh, he organizes the LeBaron family as a branch under the authority of Roland Allred. Uh, So they were initially Mormon fundamentalists for a season, with the exception of Ross LeBaron. Ross LeBaron was doing uh, his own thing uh, and he didn't blend with the Allreds. But he has, I would say that That familiar claim that family priesthood line is uh, the reason why you have, in the beginning, two churches in the LeBaron family. The Church of the Firstborn, organized by Ross LeBaron, and the Church of the Firstborn of the Funas of the Times, uh, headquartered in Mexico.
0: I want to talk for a minute about the followers now of Ross LeBaron and shift for a moment to talk about that because he has some very prominent followers in I don't know if you'd consider in the fundamentalist movement, uh, Tom Green, who you mentioned before, Robert Ray Black, who we've interviewed on this podcast, and Fred Collier. And anyone that knows these communities will recognize those names, but do you want to give us sort sort of an overview of who those men are and how Ross LeBaron influences them?
1: Well, first, Ross didn't have many followers he would usually have, you know, uh, four, five, six people at one time, and not everyone was a follower exactly. Some people were, uh, as we say in the oldest church, investigators, they were studying uh, about his claims, his ideas. There were uh, probably the three you mentioned are the most well-known because of the news, because of publications. Um, Mormonism has a great debt to uh, Fred Collier, as we know. And uh, we have this this statement from Brian Hales that he actually seems to have plagiarized from John and that those were the three that uh, claimed succession to uh, Ross Baron. And actually, there are many more. Uh, I don't know of everyone who claims to be the, the heir or successor of Rosa Baron. So uh, uh, let's start perhaps with Fred Collier. Fred Collier was Fred Collier met Rosa Baron in 1970. Uh, they had a, an association for some years. Collier even helped Rosa Baron with a lot of his research, for example, in 1975, the Church of the Firstborn publishes publishes this booklet or pamphlet called Brigham Young Speaks, and it's basically a compilation of quotes on Adam God, Adam being the firstborn, Adam being God the father, Eve being God the mother, uh, lots of quotes from Journal of Discourses, etc. And that is actually published initially as a work of Ross LeBaron. Later, at some point... Fred and Ross parted ways, uh, especially in the late 70s or early 80s. Um, Using Fred Collar's word, Ross went into darkness because of his doctrines, because of his belief, for example, that there was a priesthood to the black race or that he was uh, the head of a new dispensation. And uh, Collier was also one of the the people that didn't like the extreme informality of Ross LeBaron. So uh, how come we don't have, for example, a sacrament meeting or we are not doing the temple ordinances together and so on. So eventually they part ways. Uh, Fred Collier claims to, to have received revelation and to be ordained by Ross himself to be the successor, to have the mantle of Ross. And uh, it's actually interesting that as early as 1995, Ross LeBaron is signing this affidavit, (coughs) excuse me, this affidavit saying, I did not ordain Fred Collier to be my successor, and so on. Uh, in, In 1992, Fred Collier organizes his Church of the Firstborn. There is... A booklet he he published talking about the formal organization of the Church of the Firstborn in April 1992. Uh, and if you go to Fred Collier's church website, I think you can Google that easily, uh, you see that Fred Fred Collier tells his history without mentioning Le Baron's name. He refers to him as the patriarchal heir of Joseph Smith. So while he he uh, claims the priesthood authority coming from Ross Baron or coming through Ross LeBaron, um, he doesn't subscribe to all his theology or doctrine.
0: Now, I have a question for Uh, you really quick. Yes? Um, You gave this presentation at Sunstone this year, and I don't know if you saw this, but Fred Collier actually came to Sunstone, which surprised me because I had heard that he was, you know, out of the country because of some charges that were against him, which is probably a rumor. Did you see Fred Collier? Did he come to your presentation at all? Did you get a chance to talk to him?
1: No, I did not. Unfortunately, uh, I met Fred Collier, um in 2014, I believe. Uh, he was very kind to spend hours—I don't know, maybe 20 hours—with me talking about uh, his priesthood views and about his experience, his history with Ross. Uh, but but I didn't uh, I didn't see him uh, at Sandstone.
0: We haven't talked much about Fred on this podcast, but. Did he and Ross have a falling out? Is that why there was this affidavit? I mean, what's the story with that?
1: Well, um, my interpretation is that Collier was claiming to be a successor while Ross was alive uh, so much that he organizes uh, his own church, uh, named Church of the Firstborn in 1992. So I think that I think no I'm actually sure that uh Rosalbert knew about that and he writes then this F David to clarify things with the public actually there are some interesting stories about that moment because you know some uh, some people wanted to uh, stop Collier from doing that from wanted to call him into repentance and so on but uh what Ross said was basically let him do his thing if it is of God it will prosper So he had a very uh, calm attitude towards that.
0: Which is probably, you know, when I hear people speak of him, what attributes people's respect to him, right? He was rarely operated out of sort of scarcity and competition and things like that, but more a democratic way of with God, right? You know? God speaks uh, through yes, people like
1: them. yes and no. I, I think uh, I actually think that Ross had a competitive nature, a competitive personality.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Because, for example, the the rivalry he had with his brothers in Mexico was very strong. So, what, what, what an interesting episode is when uh, in 1962 he goes to Mexico. He goes to Colonia Le Baron in the state of Chihuahua, and he he goes there with intention to correct his brothers to. You know, preach the the true patriarchal gospel, and so on. But then he he's at the pulpit talking to to the church, and um, so yes, that, that there was this cooperation to a certain point. Uh, he's talking to the church, and he feels prevented by God to call repentance and to uh, go further. And he writes that only 20 years later, he realizes that Joel's church and Erval's group and everybody was a part of his father's house. And they belonged to his father's family. I
0: see. So and, uh, the openness sort of grew with him as he matured in his understandings and interpretations. But early on, it wasn't always that way.
1: I, I believe so. I see. I, I believe that uh, the competitive aspect of his personality changed all. Over time, and uh, perhaps in his older age, he was, uh, despite v- being very bold in his claim of being uh, the head of a new dispensation, that's pretty even shocking, I think, to, to most Mormons in any church. Uh, he was perhaps less competitive and more uh, understanding of the different Patriarchal houses, different uh missions people had. Another story maybe I, I could repeat here is that you know someone asked him about the dream mine. What what did he think about the dream mine? And he said oh, it keep, it keeps them busy. So not everyone needs to do the same thing. And he didn't necessarily recognize value in everything, in every Mormon initiative, in ever every uh Mormon fundamentalist belief, but uh it's okay. Let people do. Uh, live and let live.
0: Okay, yeah, that's helpful. So that was his interaction with Fred. Tell us about Robert Ray Black and Tom Green.
1: I'm probably not so familiar with, with the details of their stories. Um I think that Robert Black, I always think it's better to interview those people that trust my my version, my retelling. Uh, I, I think... Robert Black met Ross also in the seventies um, he had an interaction with some branches of fundamentalism. He had read a uh, truth magazine from cover to cover. He was a very knowledgeable person, um, a librarian by trade, so uh, he was obsessed with you know finding information, sharing information and uh, he he says that when he met Ross. He would learn in a single week more than all his life because Ross knew about the temple. He knew about second anointings. And that's very interesting to hear because uh, Ross never entered a Mormon temple. He never entered the LDS temples. He never entered uh, any building that could be called temple. So Uh,
0: what was his take on the LDS endowment then? Do you know? Ross? Yes.
1: Okay. So Steve McKinley met Ross in 1995 or 1994, and he later became spiritual grandson of Ross LeBaron. I've been mentioning here adopted sons, and uh, this has all to do with the law of adoption. Um, perhaps I, I should explain that, but anyways. So McKinley met Ross, and on the very f- one of the very first meetings, he he asked Ross about the endowment. And Steve McKinley had been excommunicated from the LDS Church years before because he had an altar at home, and he was uh, doing what he learned uh, Mormons would do in the 19th century and early. Twentieth uh, century, the century they would use what they learned in the temple at home. So uh, the true order of prayer was to pray to God, and not only you know um, a training in the temple, but in your home or um, other uh, church and so on. So he he had this law for the temple work, the temple rituals, and he asked Ross about the endowment and asks, uh, Ross says, if it works for you, use it. That's a very, (laughs) according to to Steve McKinley, uh, he heard that and thought it it was a very odd answer because should we use it or not? Uh, What does it mean uh, if it works for you? And Um, how would that
0: apply to his other theories about priesthood and authority?
1: So uh, he did believe In the endowment, he did believe in all temple work. Ross, actually, in 1963, nine years before organizing his church, the Church of the Firstborn, he writes to Joseph Fielding Smith, and he asks for rebaptism into the LDS Church. And the whole context of the latter is temple work, the endowment, second anointings. So he really wanted to obtain the anointings. Again, there is the rivalry with his brothers in Mexico because they they were claiming to have second anointings. Yeah, in a nutshell, uh, Ross did believe in the temple work, but uh, perhaps he was pointing to the... When he said if it works, use it, perhaps he was pointing to the fact that it doesn't work for everybody, like uh, how many people have been to the temple and they don't understand and they or they feel uh, upset or shocked or so, Ross, did yeah, I certainly don't head?
0: have a problem with that answer but I was just wondering if others might have
1: oh uh, for sure I think uh, many people would find that offensive or so unclear that they would lose all trust in such a r- religious leader yes Okay, so back to (laughs) 1963. Uh, So, uh, Ross, uh, I don't know if Joseph Joseph Fielding Smith ever wrote uh, uh, a reply. It's interesting that uh, years before Joseph Fielding Smith had actually helped Ross LeBaron, uh, he helped him to get a new copy of his father's patriarchal blessing. Ross had lost the patriarchal blessing of Alma Dayer, and he goes to the church um, building. Uh, he talks to Joseph Fielding, and they, they, gave, they gave him a, a new copy. And um, only years later, with one of his followers, one of his associates named Robert E.B., they would exchange the second anointing. So uh, first, E.B. gave him gave Ross his second anointings, and then Ross gave um, Ibi his second anointings. Uh, and that was done in somebody's house outside, you know, the, the traditional uh, setting of a temple. Ross did wear a garment. He he wore the quote-unquote Yunnan suit style of garment, one piece, long sleeve, so on. So He personally be- believed in temple work, and still he would give that answer. If it works, okay, if the endowment works, sense. use it.
0: Really quick, just so we don't forget, just give us a brief introduction of who Tom Green is, because we sort of covered Robert Black. Just a brief introduction. We'll probably talk about him at some point on the podcast.
1: Uh, yeah, that would be great. So, Tom Green met Ross Baron, I believe in the 1990s. He had been a uh, lifelong member of the LDS Church. And he eventually had some experience as a member of the Christ Church or Peterson's group. And he was disappointed with their teaching and some of their history. He was actually helped. Tom Green was actually helping this Israeli researcher. The name skips me now. He, he wrote this a very interesting book. About Mormon polygamy in Utah, and, and this researcher wanted wanted to meet the LeBaron's because he had talked to the Allreds to uh, other people, but he had never met a Labaran. And um, Tom Green tries to help with that, and he ends up having you know longer conversations with Ross. And in the late nineteen nineties, early decade of two thousand, he was imprisoned. Yes.
0: The controversy with him is there are charges of rape and and things like that that follow fundamentalist leaders. Did Ross Mm -hmm. LeBaron face any of those accusations?
1: He was incarcerated for uh, marrying uh, I think 14 14 year olds. Ross LeBaron back in the 40s was in jail. He was incarcerated with a group of 30 or 31 uh, polygamists. He had Married um, a teenage girl. I think she was either 14 or, f- or 15. And uh, apparently, you know, from the, the trial, the marriage wasn't consummated. And I think that was the only occasion where he, he married or tried to marry uh, an underage woman.
0: Did he, what do we know about his plural wives?
1: I know very, very little. Um, I met one of them, Joan Knight. There there was this very interesting lady, uh, Thelma Elena Cox. She eventually divorced LeBaron, and she she had uh, her moment of uh, fame for publishing uh, a personal ad on newspapers, even though she had eight kids, and she remarried. She um, remarried uh, uh, a gentleman last name, Shrewsbury. And uh, she had a third marriage after that as well. She, she was initially a supporter of Rosalie Baron. She was very supportive during that trial in the 1940s. I understand she was a believer. When the newspapers report about their divorce and uh, her seeking of a new husband, it's funny how they, they have different takes, like... Uh, uh, Ross LeBaron are saying they are both very stubborn and there was money issues, and that he perhaps could be accused of being aloof sometimes because, in his words, when he got to creating or inventing, uh, he wouldn't think about anything else. Uh, Ross LeBaron was an inventor. Thelma Elena Cox is saying that. You know, one of the issues was plural marriage, uh, even though she participated or uh, entered plural marriage uh, years before. Uh, they were both excommunicated from the LDS Church in 1944. And I unfortunately have not f- uh, uh, found much information about his other wives. And uh, I think in some cases, his marriages didn't last long. So Joe and I, for example, would mention a lady he was courting, and uh, that was very nice, but uh, she didn't name her, and uh, I don't think it was uh, a very long uh, relationship.
0: Do you know how many ceilings to women he claims? I do not. Okay, I'm uh, just curious uh, if he upheld uh, the 357 doctrine at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things he wrote about uh, celestial marriage is that a woman should marry where her heart belongs and if she doesn't do so, uh, she would be uh, in confusion or wandering forever. Uh, Rosalbert also believed in the idea of reincarnation. I have not been able to see when he converted to the idea, Um, but according to Fred Collier, when he met him in 1970, it was just a given. It was uh, something they, they believed in. Uh, they used that word reincarnation.
0: Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, what else What else would you like us to know about Ross LeBaron that we haven't covered that you think is interesting?
1: Hmm. I don't know.
0: Uh... <laughs> I have a question. Are you going to... Is your paper published anywhere are you planning on publishing it
1: um i plan to work more on it it's pretty long and uh, it covers it tries to cover everything so i think that's a mistake so i I might want to to i'm just wondering if we
0: could link it on the website on the podcast so people have access to it or if you have a website where people could find this information because i think it's such important history especially mm-hmm. because a lot of people aren't writing this kind of history. So where could people find you? Where can they find this history?
1: So I have a, a website about the teachings of Rosalberian and his history. I have, I've been uploading a few uh, interviews with people that uh, met him, had an association with him. It's called holyorder.org. Hopefully, I'll be able to uh, write more and upload more material.
0: Okay, so we'll link to that. And then if there's anything else you want to share, we can, we can link to that here. But yeah, wh- what are your closing thoughts? What, um, is there anything else that you want to say about Ross?
1: Well, I think his, his theology was unique. I, I don't know of—please correct me if I'm wrong—but I, I don't know of anyone claiming to have established the Church of God the Father— And he he certainly was a prophet of a different color with a different take on Mormonism. And he gave this uh, very interesting uh, contribution, I think, to Mormonism, uh, talking about the Church of the Father and the Church of the Son. So he didn't try to replace the ODS Church because the ODS Church was, in fact, the true Church of Jesus. And they had authority. They were suffering an apostasy, but they were still the church established by Joseph Smith, and they carried the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he also recognized the the fundamentalist movement as having uh, priesthood authority. So uh, I think that in Mormonism, it's very common to hear, you know, th- this idea of an exclusive relationship with the deity or exclusive authority. So we are the true church, and that means the other churches are false. They are simply uh, apostates or perhaps uh, offshots and splinter groups. And I think Ross had a more nuanced, complex view that uh, the religion established, the tradition established by Joseph Smith was like a system that could uh, have room for different divine works, different missions. So he he had, for example, this revelation that talks about exaltation and salvation. And he recognizes the Church of Jesus Christ as responsible for the work of salvation, while his church, the Church of the Firstborn, was responsible for uh, teaching principles of exaltation to humankind
0: fascinating well i really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and to share your work with us and yeah just thank you for coming on
1: thank you uh as a listener i appreciate your podcast it's very resourceful and uh, we've had some some great scholars and yeah thank you very much for the opportunity
0: The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.